Section 17 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 11. The Emperor and Empress at the Summit of Prosperity. Part 1. The visit paid by the Emperor Napoleon and the Empress Eugenie to Queen Victoria at Windsor in 1856 was returned in 1857. It was on the 18th of August that the Queen, her husband, the Prince of Wales, then a boy of fourteen, and the Princess Royal landed at Boulogne. The royal yacht had been in sight since daybreak, the Emperor anxiously watching it from the shore. But it was two p.m. before it was moored to the quai. There can be no better account of this visit than that given by Queen Victoria. The following extracts are taken from her journal. Quote, at last the bridge was adjusted, the Emperor stepped across. I met him half-way, and embraced him twice, after which he led me on shore amid acclamations, salutes, and every sound of joy and respect. The weather was perfect, the harbour crowded with warships, the town and the heights were decorated with gay colours." The delay in getting up to the wharf postponed the Queen's entrance into Paris, and greatly disappointed the crowds who waited for her coming. They were also disappointed that the greatest lady in the world exhibited no magnificence in costume. But the Queen herself was greatly impressed by her first view of Paris. Quote, the approaching twilight rather added to the beauty of the scene, and it was still quite light enough when we passed down the boulevard de Strasbourg, the Emperor's own creation, and along the boulevard by the Porte Saint-Denis, the Madeleine, the Place de la Concorde, and the Arch of Triumph, to see the objects round us." They drove through the Bois de Boulogne in the dusk to the Palace of Saint-Cloud, but all the way was lined with troops and bands playing God Save the Queen at intervals. The Queen was particularly impressed by the Zouave, quote, the friends, she says, for the Crimean War was then in progress, of my dear guards in the Crimea, end quote. The birth of the Prince Imperial being an event in prospect, the Empress was not allowed to fatigue herself, and first met the Queen on the latter's arrival at Saint-Cloud. Quote, in all the blaze of lamps and torches, says the Queen, amidst the roar of cannon and bands and drums and cheers, we reached the palace. The Empress, with Princess Mathilde and the ladies, received us at the door, and took us up a beautiful staircase, lined with magnificent soldiers. I felt quite bewildered, but enchanted." At dinner, General Canrobert, who was fresh from the Crimea, was placed next to Her Majesty and gave her his war experiences. Next day the royal party went to the Exposition Universelle, then going on in Paris, and afterwards, while the Queen was receiving the ambassadors, the Emperor drove the Prince of Wales through the streets of Paris. He afterwards took his older guests sightseeing in his capital. Quote, As we crossed the Pont de Change, writes the Queen, the Emperor said, pointing to the Conciergerie, that is where I was in prison. End quote. He alluded to the time when he was brought from Strasbourg to Paris, before being shipped for Rio Janeiro. Quote, Strange, continues the Queen, to be driving with us as Emperor through the streets of Paris in triumph. They visited Versailles, where the Queen sketched, and afterwards went to the Grand Opera. They saw Paris illuminated that night as they drove back to Saint-Cloud, the Emperor and Prince Albert recalling old German songs, and the Queen says, quote, The Emperor seems very fond of his old recollections of Germany. There is much that is German, and very little, nothing, in fact, markedly French in his character." One day all the royal party went out in a hack-carriage, 
with what the queen calls quote, common bonnets and veils end quote, and drove incognito round paris sometimes they talked politics sometimes they seemed to have joked and laughed with childish glee and enjoyment and one night the emperor took the queen by torchlight to see the tomb of his great-uncle at the invalides a guard of old warriors who had served under napoleon with santini his valet at st helena at their head escorted the queen of england to the chapel where stood napoleon's coffin not yet entombed with the sword of austerlitz lying upon it the band in the chapel was playing god save the queen while without raged a sudden thunderstorm the mornings were devoted to quiet pleasures and sightseeing the evenings to operas state dinners and state balls the great ball given on this occasion in the galleries of versailles was talked of in paris for years after Quote, the empress says the queen met us at the top of the staircase looking like a fairy queen or nymph in a white dress trimmed with bunches of grass and diamonds a beautiful tour de corsage of diamonds round the top of her dress and all en rivière the same round her waist and a corresponding headdress and her spanish and portuguese orders the emperor said when she appeared comme tu es belle next day as the emperor drove the queen in an open carriage they talked of the Orléans family, whose feelings had been greatly hurt by a recent sequestration of their property. The emperor tried to make excuses for this act, excuses that seemed to the queen but tame, and then he drove to the chapel built over the house where the Duc d'Orléans had died on the avenue de Neuilly. The emperor bought her two of the medals sold on the spot, one of which bore the likeness of the Comte de Paris, with an inscription calling him the Hope of France. The visit ended after eight delightful days, and the emperor escorted his guests back to Boulogne. Prince Albert, the queen confesses, was not so much carried away by the fascinations of their new friend as herself, but the empress secured his entire commendation. The queen and the emperor continued to correspond, and subsequently met several times, at Osborne House or at Cherbourg. I have told at some length of this visit, because it seemed to me to mark the culminating point of Napoleon III's successful career. Not only was he fully admitted into the inner circle of European sovereigns, but his place there was confirmed by the personal friendship and alliance of the greatest among them. In 1867 there was another universal exposition held in Paris, and this was also a time of great outward joy and triumph for the emperor, surrounded as he was by European emperors, crown princes, and kings but Queen Victoria was then a sorrowing widow, and decay was threatening Napoleon's apparent prosperity. It was in 1867 that the Emperor and Empress received the Tsar, the Sultan, the Crown Prince of Prussia, Princess Alice of Hesse-Darmstadt, and many other crowned heads and celebrities. It was a year of fêtes and international courtesies. But in Paris itself there was a strange feeling of insecurity, a fearful looking for something society knew not what. Quote, it seemed, said one who breathed the rarefied air in which lived the upper circles of society, as if the air were charged with electricity, as if the shadows of coming events were being darkly cast over the joyous city. One of the most remarkable sights of that gay time of hollowness and brilliancy was the review given in honor of the Emperor of Russia on June 6. No less than sixty thousand French troops, of all arms of the service, filed past the three grandstands on the race-course of the Bois de Boulogne. On the central stand sat the Empress Eugenie, with the Prince Imperial, the Crown Princess of Prussia, her sister Princess Alice, and the Grand Duchess of Leuchtenberg. Before this stand, on horseback on one side, sat the Grand Duke Vladimir, the Tsarevich, the present Tsar of Russia, the Crown Prince of Prussia, 
since the lamented Emperor Frederick, Prince Gortschakoff, the Russian Prime Minister, Count Bismarck, and an English nobleman. On the other side were the Duke de Leuchtenberg, the Duke of Mecklenburg, and the Prince of Hesse-Darmstadt, while in the centre of them all rode the Tsar, with Napoleon III on one hand, and on the other the King of Prussia. How little could any of those who looked upon that throng of royal personages imagine what in little more than two years was coming on them all! The Emperor was fond of literature, and when drawn into a literary discussion, his half-closed eyes would gleam with sudden light, and his criticisms would be both witty and valuable. During his later years, harassed by sickness and perplexities of all kinds, his greatest pleasure was to shut himself up in his study, and there work upon his Life of Caesar. He wrote it entirely himself, though he had many learned men in France and Germany employed in looking up references and making extracts for him. The book was considered a work of genuine merit. To its author it was a labour of love. He threw into it all his experiences of life, all his theories, all his Napoleonic convictions. For in Caesar and Napoleon he found many parallels. He hoped to be admitted as a literary man into the French Academy, and he meant to base his claim upon this book. I have said nothing of the cares that oppressed the Emperor in connection with the war in the Crimea, which was prolonged far beyond his expectations, of the campaign in Italy broken short off by threats of intervention made by the King of Prussia, and followed by feelings of disappointment and revenge on the part of the Italians, of the intervention of the Emperor in 1866 after the Battle of Sadoa to check the triumphant march of the Prussian army through Austria, nor of the bombs of Orsini, which led to a rupture of the friendliness between France and England, breaking up the cordial relations which existed between the two courts in 1857, and reviving that panic about French invasion which seems periodically to attack Englishmen ever since the Great Scare in the days of Bonaparte. These subjects belong rather to historical reminiscences of England, Italy, or Germany. But the Emperor had anxieties besides in France, and often found it hard to regulate with discretion even the ways of his own household. The Empress, who after she had governed France as regent in 1859, during her husband's absence in the Italian war, had been admitted to councils of state, by no means approved either her husband's domestic or foreign policy. We have seen that her influence was strongly exerted to bring about the unfortunate attempt to give an emperor and empress to Mexico. But on two other points that she had at heart she failed. She could not persuade her husband to undertake the reconstruction of the kingdom of Poland, nor to assist Queen Isabella of Spain, when her subjects, exasperated at last by her excesses, drove her over the French frontier. The Empress disliked many of the coterie who enjoyed her husband's intimacy, especially his cousin, Prince Napoleon. She resented the Prince's opposition to her marriage. She disliked his manners, his political opinions, his aggressive opposition to all the offices of religion, and she succeeded in detaching him from the Emperor's confidence and in hindering his taking part in public affairs. To his wife, the Princess Clotilde, she was deeply attached, but that did not serve to reconcile her to the Prince, her husband. Both ladies were opposed to any diminution of the Pope's temporal power in Italy, but the private circle of the friends of the Empress was too gay for the chastened nature of the Princess Clotilde, and by degrees her intimacy with the Empress became less close and affectionate than it had been in the early days of her unhappy marriage. An episode in the private life of the palace in 1859 created considerable friction in Paris, and provoked remonstrances from the Emperor's ministers. This was the admission to the circle of intimates who surrounded the Empress of the mesmerist and medium home. This man gave himself out to be an American, 
but many persons suspected that his native land was Germany, and some said he was a secret agent of that court, which had emissaries all over France, in search of useful information. The Empress, having heard of home strange feats of table-turning and spirit-rapping in fashionable salons of the capital, was eager to witness his performances. The women in the high society of Paris were greatly excited about them. Spiritualism was the fad of the season, and the Empress caught the infection. The Emperor, who was present at many of the exhibitions at the Tuileries, was also, it is said, much impressed by some of them, especially by a mysterious invisible hand laid firmly on his shoulder, and by an icy breath that passed over his face. But although the Emperor, always indulgent to his wife, resisted at first the advice of his counsellors to get rid of home, he was forced at last to put an end to the séance at the Tuileries, Fontainebleau, and Biarritz. The spirits summoned had had the imprudence to obtrude upon him their own views of his policy. When the alliance with Italy and a probable war with Austria were under discussion in the cabinet, the spirit-inspired pencil at the Tuileries scrawled these words, quote, The emperor should declare war and deliver Italy from the Austrians. Not long afterwards the vulgar presumption of home, who had accompanied the court to Biarritz, provoked the emperor, and caused him to give ear to the earnest remonstrances of his minister for foreign affairs. He gave orders that Home should appear at the Tuileries no more. Home died not long after in Germany, forgotten by the world of fashion, but leaving behind him a little circle of ardent believers. The story of the emperor's later life seems to me to be one full of pathos and of pain. It is the record of a man who knew himself to be slowly dying, whose physical strength was ebbing day by day, but who was bearing up under the vain hope of accomplishing the impossible. One admires his extreme patience, his uncomplaining perseverance, as he tried to roll the stone of Sisyphus, yet with unspoken misgivings in his heart that it would escape from him and crush the hopes of his life, as it rolled back out of his hands. Quote, Poor emperor, says the eyewitness who beheld him in his hour of triumph before the grandstand, in 1867 at the Great Review. Quote, he was a friend to all, and he fell through his friends. He was very true to England, whatever he may have been to other countries, but England failed him, unfortunately in Denmark, fortunately in Mexico, and fatally in 1870." It seems, too, as if the world forgets now, what assuredly must be remembered hereafter in history, that it was he who relieved Europe from the treaties of Vienna, and asserted the claims of nationalities, that he brought about the resurrection of Italy, that through his policy we have a solution satisfactory to the world in general of the question of the Pope's power as a temporal prince in Italy, that he was the builder of modern Paris, the promoter of agriculture, the railroad king of France, the peasant's and the workman's friend. In early life he had been an adventurer, but a kind heart gave him gracious manners. He was grateful, faithful, and generous, terribly prodigal of money, and the victim of the needy men by whom he was surrounded. It seems as if, in spite of his coup d'état, which, subtracting its massacres, may have been a measure of self-preservation, he deserves better of the world and of France than to have his memory spurned and spat upon, as men do now. He gave France eighteen years of preeminent prosperity. He left her, to be sure, in ruins. In his fall he utterly obliterated the prestige of the name of Bonaparte. No Bonaparte, probably, will ever again awaken the enthusiasm of the French people, an enthusiasm which Napoleon III relied on, justly at first, and fatally afterwards, when a generation had arisen in France, from whom the feeling had passed away. The emperor's malady, which was slowly sapping his strength, is said to be the most painful one that flesh is heir to. 
every movement was pain to him absolute rest was what he needed but cares pressed hard upon him on every side he must die and leave his empire in the hands of a woman and a child his government had been wholly personal he could not transmit his power such as it was to any other person least of all could he place it in feeble hands there were no props to his throne no bismarck or cavour to stand beside him to whom he might confide his wife and son and feel that though his hand no longer held the helm the ship would sail straight on the course he had laid down for her the men about him were third and fourth-rate men all of them enormously his own inferiors they cheated and deceived and plundered him and he knew it in a measure though not as he knew it after his downfall the emperor said once quote, there is but one bonapartist among us and that is fleury the empress is a legitimist i am a socialist and prince napoleon a republican as he contemplated the future it seems to have occurred to him that the only thing that could be done was to teach france to govern herself to change his despotic authority into a constitutional government he might live long enough he thought to make the new plan work and if by a successful war with germany a war impending and perhaps inevitable he could gain brilliant military glory if he could restore to france that frontier of the rhine which had been wrested from her by europe after the downfall of his uncle his dynasty would be covered with glory and all might go on right for a few years till his boy should be old enough to replace him both these expedients he tried in eighteen sixty nine he announced that he was about to grant france liberal institutions he put the empress forward whenever it was possible and he made up his mind that as war with germany was sure to come the sooner it came the better that he might reap its fruits while some measure of life and strength was left him long before prince albert had assured him that his policy which made his ministers mere heads of bureaux which never called them together for common action as members of one cabinet which compelled each to report only to his master who took on trust the accuracy of the reports made to him was a very dangerous mode of governing it was indeed very unlike his uncle's practice though it might have been theoretically his system both uncle and nephew came into power by a coup d'etat the one on the eighteenth brumaire november ninth seventeen ninety nine the other on december two eighteen fifty one both were undoubtedly the real choice of the people both really desired the prosperity of france but the younger man was more genuine more kindly more human than the elder one the uncle surrounded himself with quote, mighty men men of renown quote, great marshals great diplomatists great statesmen louis napoleon had not one man about him whom he could trust either for honesty ability or personal devotion unless indeed we except count Valesky. all his life he had cherished his early ideas of the liberation of italy which he accomplished of the resurrection of poland which he never found himself in a position to attempt of the rectification of the frontier of france which he in part accomplished by the attainment of nice and savoy and finally his dream included the restoration to france of self-government with order reconciled to liberty as early as january eighteen sixty seven the emperor was consulting not only his friends but his political opponents as to his scheme of transforming despotism into a parliamentary government he wrote thus to m emile olivier a leader of the liberal party in france quote, believe me i am not pausing through indecision nor through a vain infatuation as to my prerogatives but my fear is of parting in this country which is shaken by so many conflicting passions with the means of re-establishing moral order which is the essential basis of liberty my embarrassment on the subject of a law of the press is not how to find the power of repression 
but how to define in a law what deserves repression. The most dangerous articles may escape repression, while the most insignificant may provoke prosecution. This has always been the difficulty. Nevertheless, in order to strike the public mind by decisive measures, I should like to effect at one stroke what has been called the crowning of the edifice. I should like to do this at once and forever. For it is important to me, and it is above all important to the country. I wish to advance firmly in a straight line, without oscillating to the right or left. You see that I have spoken to you with perfect frankness." We also see in this letter one of Louis-Napoleon's characteristics, a fondness for taking people by surprise. Nearly everything he did was a surprise to the public, and yet it had long been maturing in his own mind. The next time M. Olivier saw the Emperor he was told of his intention to grant the right of holding political meetings, the responsibility of cabinet ministers to the chamber, and the almost entire freedom of the press. The Emperor added with a smile, quote, I am making considerable concessions, and if my government immediately succeeded that of the First Empire, this would be acknowledged. But since I came after parliamentary governments, my concessions will be considered small." The Emperor's experiment was a failure. The moment restraint was taken off, and the French had liberty of speech and freedom of the press, they became like boys released from school and its strict discipline. The brutal excesses of language in the Parisian newspapers, the fierceness of their attacks upon the government, and the shamelessness of their slander alarmed the Emperor and the best of his personal adherents who had been by no means supporters of his policy. But though the experiment gave signs of never being likely to succeed, and no one seemed pleased with the new system, the emperor persevered. He refused to withdraw his reforms. He declined to make what children call an Indian gift to his people. But the effect of the divided councils by which he was embarrassed was that these reforms were accepted by the public merely as experiments to be tried during good behaviour, and not as the basis of a new system definitely entered upon. All through the year 1869 the difficulties of the course which the Emperor adopted grew greater and greater. The emancipated press was rampant. It knew no pity and no decency. Its articles on the Emperor's failing health, which he insisted upon reading, were cruel in the extreme. Terrible anxieties for the future must have haunted him. If his project for self-government in France must prove a failure when he was dead, what then? Could a child and a woman govern as he had done by a despotic will? He had done so in his days of health and strength, but events now seemed to intimate that his government had been a failure rather than a success. End of section 17